I just want to pause just to say thanks to everybody behind uh, to lead us in worship this morning. That was... We all know that their sacrifice pales in comparison to the one who's worthy of all that worship. And, uh, and so we give him all praise in the church, all glory in the church. We're glad you're here this morning. If you're a guest here at Providence, welcome you. Uh, we are thrilled that you are with us. If you're uh, here in this room or uh, in the amphitheater at home, uh, we just want to say welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, we're in John chapter 3, uh, verses 22. Uh, to verse 36, and so if you want to turn there with you, um, if you don't have one with you, there should be one in the seat in front of you, and if you don't have one at home, we'd love for you to take that Bible home as a gift. Uh, we, we, we really do believe it's important for all of us to be absorbing God's Word in our life every single day, and one of the ways that we do that is we actually memorize uh, Scripture. Um, there's a, uh, there's uh, a, a, a text for every uh, month. And for the month of April, which we just entered into, it's actually John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. And, uh, and so uh, I'm not certain if we have this on the screen. Uh, we do. There it is. All right. So if you want to practice with me, okay, let's do that. He said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The significance of this passage, which we'll look at next Sunday when we get to John chapter 4, and why it's important to memorize that is because there's a lot of appealing things in this world that it's easy for us to look at and think, if I could tie my anchor to that, then my heart would be satisfied. That my thirst my, my, for contentment or for peace or for joy would be fully met if I could just have that. And, uh, and what this passage does is it just reminds us as we're going through the course of the day and the week and the month and the year. Is that in spite of all of the alluring things that are in our world that look like functional saviors. There's really only one person who can satisfy your heart and that's Jesus Christ. And that's what that passage is about. And so... We're going to memorize that as a family of faith uh, this month, okay? So if you would, let's bow and let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we come to your word here in John chapter 3, we believe it's just that, that this is your word. And so we want to sit under it and not over it. We want to hear what you have to say and not what certainly I have to say. And so God, I pray for power. I pray for unction. I pray for courage compassion, that you would remove the defilements in our heart, that you would remove the things that would compete with our uh, mind, our our thoughts, even this morning. Uh, God, the good news that we've received this week or the bad news that we have received this week, would you help us to view that in light of your world and in light of this word? God, we thank you for the truth that we see, and that is that there really is abundant life in Jesus Christ. It's not only for eternity, but it's for now, for those of us who trust you. And so I pray, God, that you would use this text to reinforce that in our hearts. Would you speak through weakness and bring glory to Jesus Christ alone, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So uh, this last week, uh, uh, following uh, last Sunday services, our family went down to the farm in Georgia, which is where my wife grew up. We always have an amazing time down there. And and we came back with several things. Uh, uh, 
I came back with a, with a hip that's all scratched up and bruised. Uh, first time in 20 years on those four-wheelers. I threw myself off, and, and, uh, and so, uh, so uh, and I know my wife's already told me I'm 42, and that shouldn't be a part of my life anymore, but, but, uh, but, but, but there's so much fun. But uh, so some bruises. Um, we also came home with a new puppy. Um, we didn't intend to, uh, but we did. It's a little bird dog, and, uh, uh, and um, my wife uh, went to her brother's house for a night to visit a new baby. And so while she was away, I took the boys to go get this dog. And, and uh, <laughs> so it was a surprise for all of us. And, uh, and of course, we came back with uh, a bunch of really great memories, um, uh, just time at the farm. But you know, this, this farm, this place, I, I, I trust that you have a place uh, like this. Uh, it may not be land, it might be a room, it might be a closet, it might be a book, it might be something in your life where uh, when you're there, uh, you're just able to decompress. And for me, that place, uh, perhaps unlike any other, is a place that I can totally um, rest long enough to be able to lift up my eyes to be able to see what matters. And the Lord always uses uh, those quiet times in his word in order to, um, to, to, to press down on an area of weakness or insecurity or fear um, in my own life. And he did that in my life this week through this text in John chapter 3 and through some of that quiet time uh, there at the farm. And the message or the sentence or the idea that Christ really reinforced in my own heart this last week actually put on the screen for you, and it's this, is that you and I, we're never so empty as when we are full of ourself, and we're never so alive as when we are full of Jesus. And, uh, and that's a message that I needed to learn, and that's the, uh, one that the Lord really pressed down, in particular as I was studying this passage. And so let's read it, John chapter 3, verse 22 and on. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went to this countryside And he remained there with them and was baptizing. And John also was baptizing. Of course, he was in Salem, which was just north of where Jesus was baptizing. And he was there because the water was very plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion, the word can also be translated argument, (laughs) arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over being purified. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourself bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He whom comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven, though, is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets a seal on this, that God is true. 
For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. So a few thoughts, if you want to take notes. The first point is this, is that when Jesus reigns over our heart, we enjoy tremendous, great soul rest. Soul rest. Now, when I'm um, in this idea of, of, of reigning, right, is that, is that there is a, um, a throne in each one of our hearts. There's a place of prominence that somebody gets to sit upon. And whoever's on that throne, they call the shots. So it's either Christ or it's someone else or perhaps it's ourself. But the fact is this, is that when Jesus reigns over our heart, we enjoy great soul rest. And so here's what happens, right? The Lord is in a big city, Jerusalem. He's just talked to a Pharisee. He's told them all about this gospel. And all of a sudden he leaves and he goes into this countryside and he starts baptizing. Now, we're told in John chapter 4, verse 2, that it actually wasn't Jesus who was actually the one whose arms were actually doing the baptizing work. It was actually his own followers. But what we're told is that he set up sort of a baptism site. And just up north in Salem, John, John the Baptist, he sets up his baptism site. And so here we have two places that someone can leave the city of Jerusalem to go into the countryside in order to be baptized One of them is being led by Jesus. The other one is being led by John. Now, the fact is, and you guys know this, men and women, is that if you get a bunch of men together, they'll turn a competition out of anything. It doesn't matter what it is, right? Hey, hey, like we're all sitting on the couch and there's a cup and we're eating popcorn. And I say, hey, guys, you got three sons. And so there's a lot of competition in our house. We're like, first one to get three in wins. Wins what? Doesn't matter. We just win, right? Doesn't matter. All of cable television is built on the presumption that men want to compete. So they compete about fishing and they compete about cooking and dancing. It doesn't matter what it is, right? We could do all those things without having to win. And yet there's something about in in our hearts that just naturally looks to say, I'm better or faster than you at doing that very thing. And so it shouldn't surprise us that someone was going to look at this and go, wait a minute, two men? Two followings, two baptisms. Which one's better? So we're told that there was an argument that arose. There was John's disciples and there was a Jewish man who came and all of a sudden they start contending. And it's interesting that what they were contending over was being purified. It's the word ceremonial cleansing. And so here's the Jews who have this whole idea of cleansing within the whole Old Testament by which they're living. And all of a sudden they look at these things and they go... Is this the new way that we're supposed to be cleansed? But even more than that, we know that they actually took a direction on the basis of what John said to them after they came to John and said, man, we have a problem on our hands. So perhaps this Jewish man came to John's disciples and said, you know, maybe Jesus' baptism purifies a little bit better than John simply because all of John's followers, they're all, they're all going over to Jesus' camp. And all of a sudden, John's disciples, they get all uptight of the fact that his crowd is diminishing. 
and they're worried uh, of, uh, of the, um, like, can this operation continue? Is this going to be viable if everyone leaves and goes over to somebody else's baptism? And so they run in fear to John. And they say these words to John. They say, look, John, which is almost funny if you really think about what he's saying. He says, John, look, Jesus, the guy that you pointed to, that you bore witness and you told us to go to because only he could forgive our sin. Well, you're not going to believe this. Everyone's going to him. And you're losing your crowd. And so we need to do something about this. Like this happens all the time today. I can't imagine what it was like for him. It was probably very, very similar. Perhaps they came up with all kinds of ideas of how to regather that flock. They say, you know, this whole idea, what you like to wear, John, that's not really working with people. The whole camel hair and the leather belt. Let's, let's go with jeans. Let's have you preach in jeans because people will really, really think that you're cool and revel if you do that. And the whole thing of, 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 of honey and you know, like, your, like your old diet of locusts and honey, you know, it's just not really working a whole well. How about lamb? How about lamb chops? Let's just go with lamb chops for a while. Maybe billboards, fog machines, right? Now, what's interesting is if you pause just for a second before you look at John's response and you ask this question. Why does the author, John, feel compelled to reintroduce John the Baptist at this point in time? In John chapter 1, we've already been told that John the Baptist says, He's the Lamb of God. I'm not. I'm the voice in the wilderness that was sent in order to proclaim, to get everyone ready for him. He's the Christ. He's the one. You need to go to him. You see, space is limited. We're told in John chapter uh, 21, verse Uh, 25, it says this, it says, and Jesus did many other things were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In other words, what John, the author is doing in his book is he's not giving us everything he knows about Jesus. He has a whole warehouse of stories, teachings, episodes that he can pull from. And what he's doing is he's handpicking and placing them one after another in order to get us to a conclusion. And that is to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing we'll have life in his name. And so he's just come out of a time where John has inserted a story about Jesus confronting a really religious man who's relying on himself in order to merit his way to the presence and the pleasure of God. And now all of a sudden he reinserts John the Baptist without needing to do so. And I believe why he does it is that he wants to give us his readers an example of the faith that Jesus taught in the first few verses of John chapter 3. You see, in John, I believe what we find is this this. This true example of the very last verse that we read last week, which is verse 21. This is what it says. It says, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You see, the author of John is wanting to show a living example of someone that is seeking to be less in order that he can be more. Who's seeking not to impress God with more self, but trusting God with less self. Unlike 
Nicodemus who said, this is my resume. This is my self-sacrifice. This is my self-effort in order to prepare myself to God. What he does is he says, now I want to show you a living example. And it's John. And John, out of his mouth, he says, you know what? He has to become more and I have to become less. And what's interesting is John's first response to the fear of his own disciples and the reality that his crowd, his popularity, his following is diminishing is he speaks words that drip of a lack of fear. He says a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from God. In other words, when a man loses things, God's sovereignty is just as much in play as when God gives things and entrusts things to us. And this is something that's very, very difficult for every single one of us. You see, in John the Baptist, there's no panic whatsoever. And the reason there's no panic is because there's no self-absorption. And this is ultimately one of the greatest problems with the restlessness in our heart as people. Is that we are never so empty as when we are full of ourself. When we are relying on ourself. When we're consumed with ourself. When we're thinking about ourself. You see, too often we are restless just like John's disciples who are terrified over losing a following. You see, what happens is this, is that when we try to reign and when we try to control and manipulate things so that our world remains untouched, three things always take place. First is, is that when we try to reign, we view ourselves as owners instead of stewards. Are you aware that you don't own anything? Now, I recognize that you may have your name on a deed that a man on this earth says, okay, like you may own your house more than I own your house, but it's all God's. And whether you like it or not, you're going to turn those keys over. And you see a steward who, who understands that everything has been entrusted to him, lives their whole life with hands that are open. So I'm just going to trust God with this. But owners, owners have to grip the keys within their hands. So they're always living in fear. So instead of anticipating an exchange that's bound to happen in all of our life with our world, we live in a fear of loss. See, because to lose our people and to lose our stuff and to lose our title or our corner office or our power is also to lose our identity. If you remember the story of Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh, he's all the authority and the power in the world that's been entrusted by God. And there's a bunch of Jewish people and they're multiplying by crazy. And instead of serving them and winning their hearts, what he does is he forces all of them to become slaves. And he did this because he's living in fear. It actually says that he lived in fear, always looking over his shoulder. Is there someone that's going to take what is mine? You see, this is not how John lived. John lived as a steward. He said, God put it in my hand, and if God wants to take it from my hand, he can. The second thing we always see is that when we try to reign over our heart is we tend to leave a trail of exploited people in our wake. In other words, we hurt people. And the reason we do is because the fear of loss leads to a paranoia of people where we start to view people as threats. 
They may want what is mine. They might take what is mine. They might move things so that, so that to leverage things so that I'm going to lose my world and they're going to gain their world. But hear this, friends. Life is so short. A heart that is engorged with self, just like a stomach that's engorged with junk food, is its own punishment. Your life is going to be too short for you to live your whole life looking over your shoulder as to who's going to take what is yours. There is a king. He's a God. He's sovereign over all things. And he says, this is how many days you're going to get. This is how many breaths you're going to get. These are the people that I'm going to place within your life. These are the abilities and talents that I'm going to give you. This is the provision that I'm going to give you. And as stewards, what we say is, God, it's all yours. And when you do that, what happens is there's rest that floods our heart. I think the third thing that always happens when we try to rest or or, or reign over our own heart is that we find pleasure only in more. We have to have more people. A hundred people is not enough. We need 110 people. 110 is not enough. We have to get to 120. Because someone else's group, theirs is growing even faster than our group. And so if we're really successful or if we're really faithful, then we should be growing like they're growing. So what happens is we always have to have more. And so it causes this restlessness, this exhaustion. Have you ever noticed how often we talk about being tired? You go up to someone, hey, how are you doing? It's, it's, it's uncanny how many times we answer as if it's a validation that our life has worth when we say, you know, I'm just really tired. The answer to that is, well, you should go take a nap. That's not really our problem. Our problem is that we're exhausted because our heart will not rest in God. We're constantly running after something else because we need more money or more people or more attendance or more or more of whatever it is that we think that we need. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but our hunger for more that, re- that causes within our hearts an exhaustion is not the sign of obedient Christian living. In other words, when you say, you know, I'm just tired, you're actually revealing the unbelief that's leading you to not trust God, and you're publicizing it to other people. You say, why? Because our Lord and Savior said this, come to me, all you who labor And are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. I will give you rest. He says take my yoke upon you. And learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Did you notice that a yoke over your neck. Is not optional. Every one of us has a yoke. And that yoke is either. Controlled by you. Or it's controlled by a person. Or it's controlled by God. And what he says here is this is that somebody is going to call the shots in your life. And if my yoke is not the one over your neck, you're going to be really, really tired because that yoke is going to be really, really heavy. And this is what it means to walk with the Lord is that he says, look, if you will yield to me as your Lord, what will happen is I'll be able to give you rest so that you can be kind. You can be hospitable. You see, owners have a hard time being hospitable because something might break. 
But if it's all entrusted to the Lord, it's like, well, if it breaks, it's the Lord's anyway. And so we're allowed to invite people into our life. We're allowed to be compassionate. And all of this is taking place as we anticipate the day when Jesus returns for all of what is his. And that exchange happens where whatever is in our hands, whether our fingers are closed or open, will be taken from us and given back to its rightful owner. And so ask yourself, does your life right now reflect the rest that is available from God? Do you feel at rest right now? You see, to walk with God, this is available to us. I want you to see the second thing is that when Jesus reigns over our heart, we can also know great joy. I love what he says. He says, you know that I'm not the Christ. He goes back and he requotes himself. And I think he does that because he's a humble man. And humility is so refreshing. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 21, it says this. It says, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold. And a man is tested by his praise. I think it's interesting that we normally think of a test is when we go through the, the fire, the, some kind of trial. And God reminds us here is this, is you know what? I'm going to test you as well by when you do a really good job. And a lot of people come up to you and you say, that was amazing. How do you respond to that? Think about how hard this was for a real man like John the Baptist to have an enormous following and all of a sudden to see that following leading him. The crowds never went to his head. He passed the test. And then he introduces this word picture of a wedding. And he says, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. In other words, he's saying, Jesus is the bridegroom and I'm just the friend. You see, the fact is, is that when God, who is really big over the whole universe, is big in our hearts, It allows us to say such things. But I want you to know is that if the big God was not really, really big in the heart of John the Baptist, these words could have never come out of his mouth. And the reason is because when we are ruling on our heart, when our self or our heart is full of ourself, what the Bible says is that we're simply not fit to reign. So when we try to sit on the throne of our heart and we're not fit to reign, we know we're not fit to reign. What happens is we develop insecurity. We start looking around. We need props in order to, 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 to help us to grow in security. We start looking for human applause, human attendance. We start looking for signs from other people to tell us that we're really doing a good job. And what he says here is this. He goes, actually, human applause is, it's nice, it's encouraging, but it's not the point. You see, human applause is sort of like cotton candy. It's big and fluffy, and you think that's really going to satisfy, but it only makes you thirsty. Have you ever noticed that every time that you are just wanting so badly for someone to compliment you, One of the most tragic things is when they do, because then you realize, well, that wasn't enough. I need another one. I need someone else to tell me I'm great. I need someone else to affirm. I need more. I need more. And this is exactly what happens. So how could John rejoice at such a time as this when everyone's leaving? He could do so because God, who's reigning over his heart, has taught him 
that, his, that this loss was actually his gain. You see, John had been waiting for his voice in the wilderness to be consumed by the voice of God. And now the voice of God has been heard. All the cameras are flashing. All the rice is being thrown. And it's all being thrown in the direction of Jesus. And he, who was once the best man, is now sitting alone on the steps. No one's looking at John anymore. And yet it says that his joy is now complete. And it's complete because he did his job. God was pleased with him. And that was enough. His pleasure was wrapped up upon the heart of God being pleased with him. Because what happens is when God is on the throne of our heart and when he confirms righteousness in our heart, it is so pleasing. It makes us feel as if the world is circling as it should when the Holy Spirit confirms his pleasure in our life. That that decision, that step, that that act of love, that that was the right thing to do. See, friends, what's amazing is John's job is our own. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, every single part of our life has been given to be entrusted to us to make much of him. So let me ask you this question. Not only is the rest of God alive in your life, but are you joyful today? Are you really joyful because Christ is reigning on your heart? The third thing is this, is that when Jesus reigns over our heart, we enjoy the peace of being purified. Surely you all remember where this whole story started. An argument over purification. And what's beautiful is that Jesus doesn't leave that hanging and John does not leave that hanging as well. You see, in John chapter 1, verse 29 and verse 35, John looks at John the Baptist and he says, Look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now all of a sudden, John switches his illustration and he calls him the bridegroom. Now, why would he do this? Is he the lamb or is he the bridegroom? The answer is both. For this same author, John, wrote the last book of the Bible. And when we get there, We're told in the 21st chapter in verse 9, this is what it says. It says, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And so not only is the bridegroom the lamb, but the bridegroom is the one that purifies our heart. You see, Paul brought this up when he's confronting the reality of husbands being loving men in Ephesians chapter 5. Most of us only focus on what we're supposed to do. We forget to focus here on what Christ has done for us. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth to live a righteous life, to die and to rise again in order to take care of your sin and mine, in order to take it away from us. And one of the things I love about the grace of God is it humbles a man without degrading him and it exalts a man without inflating him. The gospel tells us that we're significant, that we're made in the image of God and therefore we have worth. And so even when the Bible humbles us, He doesn't rub our face into the ground. He just acknowledges the problem that we have. And then he brings his 
his Savior, the Savior to us. You see, ultimately, providence, this is so important that we learn this lesson. And that is that when our heart is full of ourselves, we really are at a loss. But when he increases and we decrease, there is tremendous peace and purity. There's tremendous joy and there's tremendous rest. And so I want to encourage us with a few things as we get ready for the Lord's Supper. The first is this, is let's trust Jesus and all that he has accomplished for us. Verse 32 and 33 says that all of eternity is going to divide over whether or not you believe God is true in Jesus, that God has spoken in Jesus. He says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life and whoever does not, God's wrath remains on him. You see, we can trust that Jesus is the answer because he came from God, we're told in verse um, 31. He says he came from above. And because he came from above, he can speak about what above desires and longs and, and wants. He knows heaven's value system. He knows what should be taking place on the earth. And so we can yield to him. And that's the second thing is as believers, let's yield to Jesus Christ as Lord. If you're struggling right now with a rest in the heart, if you're struggling with peace in your heart, if you're struggling with joy in your heart, the answer is not for you to work harder. It's to kneel before Jesus and allow him to take control of your heart. It's to open up your hands and say, God, I'm just going to trust you with my life, with this decision. Would you inform this decision? And the last is let's point people to Jesus and in doing so find joy. There are so many people who do not know that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we've been called to tell them. Just as John the Baptist was called to go and point people to Jesus, so we can as well. So God gave us an amazing gift in the Lord's Supper, which we're going to take now. So for those guys, if you're going to serve us, if you would come at this point, and I just want to encourage you as Christ gave us this in order to remember and to proclaim what he has made available to us, It's so important for us, what it says is before taking of this, that we first must examine our own heart. And so I want to ask you right now where you're at to take these moments as these things are being passed and to examine your heart and see if there's any sin in your life that's unconfessed. Because he says to eat and drink of of these things without believing in them or without examining your heart first is to bring judgment upon yourself, which we do not want. And so Christ, on the night that he was betrayed, he took a cup and he took bread. And he says, these are going to be symbols that you're going to continue to take in order to remember what I've made available to you. And so when we take these things, it's critically important, first of all, that you remember that only if you know Jesus Christ should you take these. And so if you don't know him yet, if you're just exploring, we would just ask you just to pass the plate, okay? But if you know them, And if you know your Savior, Jesus, you're resting and trusting in him, then this is for you. And so it really is a joy to serve this to you and to take this as a family of faith. So if you would, let's bow and let's pray. Bob. Father in heaven, as we come to this table this morning, we come with a great hope. Hope that is sure, hope that is certain. Because we celebrated last week a resurrected Jesus Christ. And Lord, we celebrate a great exchange. Lord, the godly for the ungodly, the righteous for the unrighteous. He who was rich became poor so that we who are poor can become rich. So Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. We give you glory.
Lord, uh, what a blessing it is to take the blood of the new covenant and the bread of life. So, Lord, we give you honor and praise for that. And as, as Brian has said, Lord, if, uh, if we don't have that rest, if we don't have that joy, Lord, if we don't have that purity of heart, Lord, let us examine ourselves, Lord, with your spirit work in our heart during this time. Teach us, Lord, lead us, that we might have rest and joy and peace that you provide, Lord, because uh, you tell us that your burden is light, and, Lord, that you will carry those burdens on our behalf. So, Lord, we praise you. We thank you, Lord. We'd ask that you'd bless this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.